The following message entitled, Our Spiritual Food, Drink, and Oxygen, Part 3 of the series, God Has Spoken, was given by Mark Altrogi on the 21st of September, 2014. To learn more about our church, please visit sgcindianapa.org. My name is Mark. I'm the, one of the pastors here, so if this is your first time, thanks for coming. I hope I get a chance to meet you. Um, and again, if you can stop by the guest reception, that'd be great. I'm going to try and make it back there after I grab a quick cup of coffee, although we will have also coffee in the guest reception if you would like, and some other refreshments. So thanks for coming this morning. This morning's message is titled, God Has Spoken, Our Spiritual Food, Drink, and Oxygen. God Has Spoken, Our Spiritual Food, Drink, and Oxygen. I remember a time in college, and Jesus had not yet rescued me, so I was sitting around with a bunch of my friends, drinking, and Budweiser has kind of a a way of loosening your tongue, so we were all sitting there. That was, uh, there were no microbreweries back then, so if you're wondering why I would drink Budweiser. um, We were sitting around drinking, and somehow the subject got on to God, and each one of us would say, well, this is what I think God is like. And then we'd spout off our minds, and then the next person would say, oh, I think this is what God's like. And after, after about probably half an hour of that, we had no idea what God was like. <laughs> How do we know what God is like? How do we know what God desires for us or requires of us? How do we know what, if anything, God has done for us? And the problem of sin and whether we'll go to heaven or hell? Or how do we know whether there is really a heaven or a hell? How do we know they really exist? Well, this morning we are going to be talking about what theologians call the necessity of Scripture. The necessity of Scripture. And that means that the Bible or Scripture is essential, absolutely essential, absolutely necessary to know what God is like, to know how to be saved, to know God's will, and to know how to live the Christian life. Last week, Joe did a great job speaking about the sufficiency of Scripture. And the sufficiency of Scripture means the Bible has everything we need for salvation. Everything we need for knowing and obeying God. And he challenged us. Joe challenged us. And he said, is the Bible your go-to book or your go-to source for your spiritual life? And I'm not just talking about like when we're in church. I'm talking about all of life is very spiritual. When you go to school, when you go to work, when you're interacting with your neighbors, that there are spiritual things happening all the time. You're being tempted to anger. You're being tempted to to fear. I mean, there are spiritual things happening in our day-to-day, everyday life. And is the Bible your go-to book? And so the Bible is sufficiency. 
It's sufficient. It's not only sufficient, but it is absolutely essential, absolutely necessary. It is our spiritual food and drink and oxygen. Now, by marriage, I am related to a famous person. In March of 2009, my wife, Christie's nephew, by marriage, so it's the husband of my wife's niece, his name is Tyler Fish, and his friend John Houston, they set out to be the first Americans to travel to the North Pole under their own power without resupply. So in other words, wherever they started from, they had to load up, and they went to the North Pole without anybody flying in supplies, no help from anybody else. First time, they're pretty famous if you want to search on the World Wide Web, search for Tyler Fish, and you'll see this famous person I'm related to. Over a period of nearly two months, John and Tyler skied more than 500 miles, hauling sleds loaded with 300 pounds of everything they needed to survive and to fuel their bodies and fight back the cold. Each one, some of you would love to do this, each one consumed more than 7,000 calories per day, downing deep-fried bacon, chunks of butter, and fat-laden pemmican stew. Has anybody ever had pemmican stew in here? <laughs> I'm not even sure what pemmican stew is. Is it a bird, pemmican? I don't know. It's fat-laden. And they, they considered these things necessities. Some of you probably consider deep-fried bacon a necessity to live. <laughs> but they would not have set out on this challenge without these necessities. They, they would have considered it absolutely crazy to go without their necessities. Well, more than these kinds of necessities, the Bible is absolutely necessary for our spiritual life. Kevin DeYoung says this, The doctrine of Scripture's necessity reminds us that we need God's Word to tell us how to live and how to be saved. Personal experience and human reason cannot show us the Gospel. We need God's gracious self-disclosure if we are to worship rightly, believe in Christ, and live forever in heaven. We need God's gracious self-disclosure. And so in Matthew 4.4, Jesus said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, the Word of God is absolutely necessary for spiritual life. Man may live physically by bread alone, but he will not live spiritually apart from every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now think about this. You won't enjoy spiritual life if you don't take in the Word of God in some way or another. If you're a believer and you neglect the Word of God for many, many months on end or weeks on end or days on end, I, if I neglect the Word of God for a week, it affects me. 
It is absolutely necessary for life. Some of us make sure that we never miss a meal. I know I, I don't. I eat by the clock, whether I'm hungry or not. If it's a certain time, I don't care if I'm hungry. i got to (laughs) eat. The Bible. We need the Bible. Some of us can go maybe days or weeks, you know, without reading the Bible, but we need it. It's a necessity. Some of us wouldn't go a single day without texting or Facebook or checking our email. And yet we can go for long periods without reading the Bible. If, if, if you are more interested in Facebook than the Bible, you're going to miss out on life, spiritual life. John 8, 31, 32, Jesus said, If you abide in My Word or continue in My Word, you are truly My disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. See, this... This really affected my life. Before Jesus rescued me, before He apprehended me, I, I heard somebody say, get a Bible, read it for 15 minutes every day. If you're not used to reading it. Read it in the morning or read it whenever you can consistently read it and do what it says. That's all, that's all I heard somebody say. So I bought what was then called the Good News Bible. It was a paperback Bible. I think I bought it at the IUP Student Union. And I started to read it. My life was a mess. But I would get up in the morning and have a cup of coffee and start to read the Bible. And gradually, over time, I began to know the truth. I began to come to know the truth about Jesus. And gradually, the truth set me free. From slavery to sin, Jesus set me free from so many things. But it was it started when someone said, get a Bible and start to read it every day and do what it says. I, I would also add, believe it and obey it. Turn to God, turn to Jesus, call out to Him, of course. But that's all they told me. And the Bible has affected my life. It has given me, Jesus has used His Word to give me life. And I, I, I would so want every one of you to have the life of Jesus, to know this wonderful life. So the Bible is necessary to know God and what He is like. We can know there is a God and something about Him by looking at the creation. This morning on the way over here, the sun was behind the clouds and they had a brilliant silver lining and there were beams of light shooting up and I could not help breaking into praise. And, And I can look at the creation. I can know something about God. It says in Romans 1, 18 through 20, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. When we look at the creation, we can see plainly 
there is a God who has eternal power and a divine nature. The sun and the moon and the galaxies and the mountains and cumulonimbus clouds and blue herons and luna moths and garden spiders, they all proclaim there is a God who has eternal power. All of this could not have just happened. I look at the creation and I think, how could people believe this just happened? This incredible beauty, this incredible intricacy. And so Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. And that's, that's what this upcoming outreach is going to be about. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech from the creation. Creation is pouring out a declaration of God. And night to night reveals knowledge. And theologians call this kind of knowledge, this kind of revelation that we can get from looking at the creation, general revelation. In other words, the creation reveals the glory of God to all men in general. But we need special revelation, which is what the Bible is. There's so much the creation can't tell us about God. I mean, if you look at the creation, you could tell that God is powerful, but, the, but can you tell for sure? Can you know that God is good? You might, look at, you might look at the beautiful clouds in the morning and say, oh, that tells me God is good. Well, what do you say then when you see a tsunami? Does that say God is good? What the, the creation can't tell us if God is a loving God. You can look at a tree in the woods and say, boy, that is, God must be very creative to make something like this. But does that tell us that He's a loving God? Does it tell us whether God cares about how I treat other people? What does, the creation doesn't tell me if God cares about whether I sin or not. The creation doesn't promise that God will deal justly with men like Hitler or ISIS. Creation Creation doesn't assure me that God is just. Creation doesn't assure me that God is holy or merciful or that He cares about us personally. Nature can't reveal all this about God. Neither can human reasoning and intelligence. If you look at all the religions in the world, you'll see that human reasoning has come up with thousands of ideas of what God is like. Some religions believe there are thousands of gods. Hinduism believes in a god named, and I may not pronounce it right, Ganesha, that has the head of an elephant. I, I personally wouldn't want to worship a god with the head of an elephant. I'm not mocking them. But that's what humans come up with if left to themselves. Left to human reasoning. Come up with all kinds of ideas about what God is like. The Mormons, and if you're a Mormon, I'm, I'm glad you're here, and I'm not trying to insult you in any way, but Mormons, according to one of their websites that I went to, believe that God and man are essentially of the same species. And that God the Father has a body of flesh and bones. And He's not the Creator of all things. 
He can't even create matter, and he's one of potentially billions of gods. So it's absolutely necessary for us to go to Scripture to learn what God is like. You know, don't, don't go into your bedroom or wherever you would find solitude and just say, okay, I want an apparition. I want some uh, God appear to me. Show me what you're like. Because there's, there's other beings who might take advantage of that. Go to your Bible. The Bible, Scripture tells us God is an infinite being. Infinite. He's an infinite being. I mean, sometimes I think about that and it blows my mind. I read somewhere that said that because God is an infinite being, there will always be things about God that only He knows. And He's going to be unveiling His glory to to those He saves for all eternity. We'll be seeing new glories of God for all eternity, but for all eternity, after we've been there 100,000 years, there will still be an infinite amount of God that we know nothing about that only God knows of Himself. That's the kind of God that makes me want to get on my knees and bow down. He's an infinite being, far above, completely different than anything in His creation. He's infinitely higher than the highest angels. Human intelligence can't even begin to fathom what God has revealed Himself to be like in Scripture. And, and so in Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet Isaiah catches a glimpse of God's glory and it pretty much blows his mind. And so in Isaiah 6 it says, beginning in verse 1, "...in the year that King Uzziah died..." I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two He covered His face. With two He covered His feet. And with two He flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory." And when, when something is repeated three times in Scripture, it means it can't get any more. I mean, you'd hear Jesus say, Verily, verily, I say to you. Or truly, truly, I say to you. And when Jesus said that, that was saying, Listen up. This is serious. This is the truth. But when we see things repeated three times, it means holy, holy, holy. God is so holy, we can't even grasp what that means. He is infinitely holy. And the whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of Him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me. In other words, He was a prophet. And this is the way prophets pronounced curses in the name of God on other nations. They would say, woe to you, Egypt. Woe to you, Philistia. It wasn't like a woe is me. You know, like the old movies. This was pronouncing a prophetic curse upon himself when he saw the glory of God. He said, woe is me. I am lost. I'm the prophet of Israel. I am the prophet God has raised up for Israel. And now, when I see who God is, I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. 
He's, he's, he's the man who made proclamations for God. And he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. When we read this scripture, see, God is, God is revealing to us himself through this scripture that was recorded. And we learn something about God. We learn that God is so transcendent and holy that the highest created beings, the seraphim, who never sinned themselves, they were holy, but they had to cover their faces because they could not gaze on God's blazing holiness. And we learn that the Isaiah prophet, or the prophet Isaiah, when he caught a glimpse of God's holiness, he realized he was lost and sinful and unclean. And so Scripture is absolutely necessary for us to begin to see that God is holy. He is infinitely pure. There is no sin in Him. And He will not tolerate sin in His presence. And that we need a Savior to rescue us from our sins. The Bible reveals there is one God who exists in three persons Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is no way we could know that apart from Scripture. There is no way we could come up on our own with one God who exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. There's not three gods. There's one God. Only Scripture tells us that. And that's a mystery. And I'm not saying I understand it. But that's who God is. And we learn that from the Bible. And the Bible also reveals that God is infinitely, perfectly just. I mean, we look around the world and we see these horrible things being done and injustice. And we, we wonder if there will be final justice in the world. And God's Word says, yes, every sin will be punished one way or another. Either in Jesus or people who reject Jesus will be punished for their sins. Every wrong will be made right. Every human will stand before the judgment seat of God. And though the world seems out of control, and maybe your life seems out of control, the Bible tells us God is sovereign, which means He is in control of all things. God is in control over every atom in the universe, over every cell in your body, over every molecule. And this, this week when we hear the heavens proclaim the glory of God and we learn the vastness of the universe, every molecule of every galaxy, billions and billions of light years away, God is in absolute control of that. I shared this once, once before, but my son Jonathan had a telescope that was fairly powerful for a person to own. And one summer night, he says, hey, Dad, come and look at this. And I looked into the telescope and I could see Saturn. I could see this white, it was a white ball with rings around it. I just, I just said, oh, God, God is sovereign over every molecule in the rings of Saturn. He's holding it in place. I mean, to see Saturn live itself in a telescope, I, I felt a sense of awe. And the Bible tells us that there's not a single thing that happens in your life outside of God's control. So you don't have to think, oh, my boss is in control of my life. My, 
my teacher, my prof is ruining my life. I have a neighbor from Gehenna who is ruining my life. No, God is in absolute sovereign control of every single thing that happens. Not only is He sovereign, but the Bible reveals... Uh, this is the most such a helpful thing. There's a book that we have in our book ministry called Trusting God by Jerry Bridges. I would highly recommend it. He's, he, makes the, the, he makes the point that God is not only sovereign, but He's loving or good, and He's wise. He's infinitely loving and good. He's infinitely wise. He is sovereign. Imagine a universe with a God who is sovereign, but He wasn't wise. A God who's in control of all things, but He's not loving. Or imagine a universe with a God with, who's loving and good, but He has no power. He'd like to be in control, but He's just, you know, He's a loving God, but there's a lot of things He can't change. Or imagine a universe with a sovereign God who's infinitely wise. What was the other one? <laughs> it's not loving. Good. Sovereign, wise, loving. Yeah, he wasn't loving. Imagine a God, a universe without a God who's loving. Get that book, Jerry Bridges, Trusting God. But the Bible is the only way we know this. And so, at times when, when I go through hard things in life, it is so good for me to know that God is loving. And I can say, Lord, this is so hard, but I know You are sovereign. I know You are loving. I know You are good. This thing that's happening to me is bad. But I know you are good. And I know that you're in control of all that happens to me. And so I can praise you even in the midst of hard times. So the Bible is absolutely necessary. It's absolutely necessary to know that God has always desired and intended to have a people to dwell in and be with. And so Exodus 6, 6 and 7, God says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians." And in Leviticus 26.12, And I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be My people. And then Paul in 2 Corinthians 6.18 quotes the Old Testament, And I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to Me, says the Lord Almighty. When, when I was growing up, I was taught that there was a God by my parents. and I went to church with them. But I had no idea that God wanted to dwell with us. That He wanted to dwell with me. That, he, that I would be one of His people. I, my picture of God was He was way up there, too busy running the universe to care about my sins. Or not my sins, my needs, my, my problems, my challenges. And then I found out we can come to God Himself. He dwells with us wherever two 
or more are gathered in my name, I am there in their midst. The only way we could know that is from the Bible. Absolutely necessary to know that God desires a relationship with us. You couldn't figure that out by looking at a sunset. The Bible is absolutely necessary to know how to be saved and come into a relationship with God. See, the the typical human way of thinking is saved? What do I need to be saved from? I didn't realize I was in any danger. I, I bet if you went on campus and asked people, do you think you need to be saved? They'd probably say, saved from what? Seems like my life's going pretty good here. I don't see anybody with a gun nearby. And then if you talk about potential of a heaven and hell, most of us, before we would read the Bible or hear the Bible preached, most of us think we're pretty good. I, I, before Jesus saved me, I thought I was pretty good. I knew I was doing some bad things. I knew I was enslaved in some areas to sin. But I thought, overall, I'm a pretty good guy. I'd help an old lady across the street. I wasn't like walking around looking for people to hurt. I, was a, I thought I was a decent guy. I would have thought, well... I hope I've done more good things than bad things, and that might get me into heaven. There's no way that we could know that, uh, that we are under the wrath of God, that every human being has committed sins, and that those sins are offenses against the holy God. And those sins bring every single one of us under the wrath of God and it hangs over our head like a sword. And if we were to die that day, we would go to hell for eternity. There's no way we could know that apart from Scripture. And there's no way that we could know what Jesus did to save us from that wrath apart from Scripture. I mean, if you just said, okay... Jesus died on the cross. You could say, well, lots of people died on the cross. The Romans, I read, crucified at least 10,000 people in their history. What makes Jesus' death any different? How do we know that Jesus wasn't just one out of 10,000 people the Romans nailed the crosses? Only by this. Only by the Bible. If we, if we were just standing there looking at Jesus hanging on the cross with our human observation, human senses, we would have no idea He is paying for sins. He is paying for my sins as He's hanging there. He is enduring the wrath of God in His soul. It's only, we only find that out from Scriptures like 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And 1 Peter 2.24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, 
that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds, you have been healed. In other words, we have been healed of the sin that enslaved us and brought us under God's wrath. The only way we know that is Scripture. Scripture scripture lets us see into the invisible realm. Let's us see into the invisible realm in history past. It's like a spiritual x-ray machine or MRI machine or whatever. In 2011, I got a stent in one of the arteries next to my heart. And during the procedure, I was awake. And at one point, the doctor said, okay, look over to your left. Here's an x-ray of the blockage. And there it was. And I could see the artery. I could see the dark area of the blockage. I believe, if I remember right, I could even see my heart beating. I could see into the invisible realm. I could look inside my body. I said, are you sure you know what you're doing, Doc? (laughs) No, I didn't say that. (laughs) That's just incredible. But Scripture lets us look into the spiritual realm and see what exactly Jesus did to save us on the cross. And it's absolutely necessary to know how to receive this salvation. We don't receive salvation by trying to be good enough and trying to earn it. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says it's a gift for by grace, for by grace, which is the free gift of God, the unmerited favor and lavish goodness of God, for by grace you have been saved through faith. We receive this gift through faith. And and Paul says, and this is not your own doing. This salvation is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. In other words, none of us who are saved are going to be in heaven and say, well, I got here because I gave $50,000 to the poor. No. No. No one's going to boast in heaven. We're going to say, I'm here because Jesus had mercy on me and poured out grace into my life. And Scripture is absolutely necessary for our lives as believers. As I said, it's our spiritual food. And as, as we read earlier, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus said, just as bread or food sustains our physical lives, so God's word sustains our spiritual lives. If you go without food and water, you will eventually die physically. If you never take in God's Word, you will shrivel up spiritually. Your faith will shrivel. Your hope will shrink. Your peace will dry up. You won't do well when you go through hard times if you neglect God's Word consistently. We live by God's Word. We live. Isaiah 55, 1 and 2 says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money... Come, buy, and eat. In other words, this is free. 
Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to Me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. And that He is talking about God's Word. He says, listen to Me and take in My Word. That's rich food. Why are you spending all your money and time and effort and energy on all kinds of things that aren't going to give you spiritual life? And God's not saying it's wrong to go get an ice cream cone or it's wrong to read a book. He's, he's not saying that, but He's saying if, if you neglect My Word you're not going to be satisfied spiritually. God's Word is our spiritual food, our spiritual fuel. Just as our cars require fuel, and our bodies require food and oxygen, so our spiritual lives require God's Word. As a young Christian, I, I heard that you could speak things into existence. I don't believe now. But I was taught that. And so one day my 69 Plymouth Fury was on empty, so I began to say, in Jesus' name I command gas to come into my car. Be filled in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, let gas come into my car. It kept going down. For In Jesus' name, let be filled in Jesus' name. I learned that my car needed fuel. And I couldn't neglect to put gas in my car. You've got to put gas in your spirit. If you don't, you will sputter out in life. And I've got to say this too. This is our guide to life. This Word of God keeps us from disaster and sin and falling in traps and snares of the enemy. And so Psalm 119.105 says, Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. We need God's Word. I remember when I was a kid, my mom and dad took us to a cave in Missouri called Onondaga Cave. And at one point in the in the middle of the cave, they turned out all the lights. And it was pitch black. I could not see my hand in front of my face. Well, if we neglect God's lamp to our feet and light to our path, we're in worse darkness. And we've got to have God's Word or we will get tripped up on the snares of sin and temptation. So Psalm 119, verses 9-11 through says, How can a young man keep his way pure? How can an IUP student keep his way pure? How can a 35-year-old husband keep his way pure? How can a 64-year-old guy keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your Word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your Word in my heart that I might not sin against you. See, if we don't store up God's Word in our hearts... No guarantee that we're not going to sin against God. We've got to store up God's Word. We've got to regularly take it in. Once I was camping, our family was camping, and I was walking away from the campfire through the woods, and I had a flashlight, 
And at one point, as I lifted my flashlight up in front of me, it suddenly illuminated a huge web that a spider had built at eye level, at head level, and right in the middle was a huge spider, a gigantic spider. Without that light, I would have walked right into that spider. It would have been right on my face. God's Word is a light to my path. You know, the the Word of God keeps us from walking into tragedies and sins and spiders, spiritual spiders. That was... And I won't ever forget that. It was like, whoa! Because the spider was like right here when I almost walked into it. So Ephesians 6. You know, Jesus... Before I get to Ephesians 6. Jesus... When he was tempted, how did he fight temptation? With the Word of God. Every time Satan tempted him, Jesus said, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and Him only. The way that we fight temptation is to recall Scripture to mind. And so Ephesians 6 says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We are fighting powerful enemies. You think that you're smart enough to outwit the devil on your own without the Word of God? You think you're smart enough to outwit cosmic powers? But here's how he says we fight them. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That's how we overcome Satan. By the Word of God. When we're tempted, we say, no, God's Word says this. When someone is yelling at us at work or a boss is screaming at you, you remember God's Word. A gentle answer turns away wrath. When you're tempted, you remember the Word of God. Flee immorality. How do I flee immorality right now in this situation? Okay, Lord, I'm getting out of here. It's the Word of God that we recall to our minds by which we conquer temptation. So, the Scripture is absolutely necessary. It's absolutely necessary. I want to share one more Scripture because it's one of my all-time favorite Scriptures. Lamentations 3, 21-23. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. We're calling to mind what God's Word says about Him. Do you want to have hope in your life? This this is so often how God gives me hope. When I'm feeling discouraged, when I'm feeling hopeless, This I call to mind. See, we have to call something to mind. We have to call the Word of God to mind. We have to remind ourselves of what the Word of God says. I call to mind, and as I call these truths to mind from the Bible, it gives me hope. This I call to mind, 
And therefore, I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. So if you're discouraged right now, if you feel hopeless, call this to mind. Say, Lord, thank you that your steadfast love never ceases. Your mercies never come to an end. Thank you for your mercies that are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I know you're going to be faithful to me, Lord. Thank you. And as you start to call those biblical truths to mind and other promises of God, hope will arise in your heart. I promise you it will. God has done that for me over and over. How do we know God's mercies are new every morning? The Word of God. How do we know God's faithfulness will never cease? Scripture. It's absolutely necessary It's breathed out by Him. It's inspired. It's the authority for our lives. God's Word is sufficient. It's all we need to know for life and godliness and to have a relationship with God. And God's Word is absolutely necessary. We can't know God without it. We can't live without it. We can't escape temptation without it. It's our spiritual food, drink, and oxygen. It's our spiritual fuel. So I just, I just I want to pray for you. Let's pray together, actually. Let's ask God. Lord, we thank You that You have given us Your Word because we couldn't know You without it. We thank You that Your Word does so much in our lives. Lord, would You help me, first of all, and all of us, Value Your Word more. Would You help us to be diligent to regularly take in Your Word? Lord, help us to desire Your Word. Help us to believe Your Word when we're going through trials and tough times. Help us to be students of Your Word. Help us to Encourage one another with Your Word. Lord, this week at fellowship groups, help us to just be further built up as we talk about Your Word. We just thank You, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.